Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Immigration is probably the most divisive and heated subject in British politics today, and the same is true in many other countries, including the Netherlands, where our guest on this episode, Hein de Haas, is a professor focused on migration and development. His new book, How Migration Really Works, is an eye-opener for anyone seeking an understanding of why people immigrate and what it means for their origin countries and destination countries. It's neither left nor right-wing and will help illuminate what's really at stake, regardless of your politics. I spoke to Hein about his research a couple of weeks back. Enjoy. Hein, can you sketch out for us how you became interested in studying migration and why? It was actually a journey to Morocco when I was 17 years old. I took a train trip through Europe and I ended up in Morocco and I got really fascinated because normally we hear about migration in terms of what it means to Britain or any other countries migrants go to. And I was so struck when I was in Morocco that I met so many people speaking Dutch, German, French, because Morocco is one of those big emigration countries. And I really was struck by the other side of migration, as I, as I always say and 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 I also really got interested in the impacts of migration on countries of origin which is not sort of the usual take and that really drew me into I mean in the end of the day not at that moment but it drew me into a sort of fascination about about looking at migration from the other side and how was that translated into an academic career well I first studied anthropology and geography and I had to do some field work uh, as part of my sort of master thesis and I said to myself why not go to the south of Morocco because it's an interesting country. I actually went there to look at the connections between environmental change and agriculture and oases in the south of Morocco, not even necessarily about migration. But then I discovered how important migration was, again, for explaining anything in the south of Morocco or anywhere you go in Morocco in terms of social change, economic change, and all perceptions of people change because so many people left to Europe. And after I, I graduated, I did some jobs here and there, but then I really thought, I really want to understand this migration much more deeply. And that's how I, in the end of the day, I, uh, I sort of applied for a PhD and, and I got some funding. And, and, and then I left and, and lived there for two years to do fieldwork, really, about the impacts of migration on origin countries, and particularly in Morocco, North Africa, Middle East. And yeah, this is how I got into the field of migration studies. Why do you think academic research in the field of migration studies, both yours and that of your peers, has failed to reach the public or indeed policymakers? I think there's two problems. I think uh, there's a usual problem that uh, if you want to make an academic career, you're very much encouraged to publish in academic journals. You're not really encouraged to write for a broader public. That is a bit how academics' career are being made. You're in a way punished even in an early career stage. And that means you, you're going to write in a very inaccessible language. So that is not very stimulated. But I think a particular feature of migration is that the debate is so polarized between sort of the anti and, and pro camps that there is very little room for nuance. And what I've really learned the hard way in many ways, uh, I've of course done my attempts to talk to policymakers and to politicians that simply any evidence that is not convenient for political narratives is simply being ignored. So through this polarization, you also see that the whole nuance gets squeezed out. And of course, what you bring as an academic is usually a more calmed down, nuanced perspective on issues like migration. And you often don't find any place for that. So it's the polarized nature of the debate as well that, that, that is a major obstacle. Why do you think it is that migration is such a polarizing issue? 
And can you sketch out for us the two sort of caricature positions that we see in this debate? Well, I think on one level it's understandable. You know, we have all these abstract processes of of all the changes in our world, like globalization and technological change and, and what's happening in the world around us. And I think migrants are probably the most concrete manifestation of change in our society because they're literally are living in our neighborhoods and, and they're changing our society. So migrants sort of symbolize almost a change or, 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 or incorporate it almost literally in people's daily lives. So in, in a way it's understandable, but what's happening on a political level is that migration is used by politicians to serve very different agendas. And here you see a clear polarization between a sort of anti and pro-migration position. The anti-migration position tends to portray migration as a problem to be solved. And it's the usual narrative about migrants taking away jobs, depressing wages, taking away scarce affordable housing, clogging up the healthcare system, the educational system, or even being a sort of more existential threat to the cultural identity or cohesion of destination societies. There is another narrative, and it is originally more sort of a liberal libertarian narrative that sees migration more as a solution that says we need migrants. Uh, we need migrants to fill up crucial labor shortages. Migrants are also the innovators. Many CEOs of companies are migrants. Migration brings innovation and growth, and it helps us to solve problems of aging societies. So what's happening is that both sides of the debate hugely exaggerate, first of all, the change potential of migration, and are very one-sided perspectives. Um, and, and so we see this huge exaggeration, which, if you look at the evidence, Uh, you get a much more sober perspective in many ways. One of the most striking ideas in this book is that we shouldn't think of migration as a debate around which you're pro or anti any more than we would think of an economist taking a position on whether they are pro or anti the economy or a biologist being pro or anti the environment. It just doesn't make sense to frame it as a debate. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, it have actually, there was a form of awareness that came to me in a debate around the so-called Syrian refugee crisis uh, around 2008, I think. And I was participating in a debate, and I remember the moderator asking the public, who is in favour, uh, like Professor De Haas, and who is against migration? And it was like a a penny dropped. I think this is exactly what is the problem because we know that migration has always been there. People have always migrated. Whether you like it or not, it's it's part of who we are as human beings, as societies. And it would be indeed as silly in a way to ask me, are you in favor or against or anybody else? Are you in favor or against the migration? Because migration is there. It doesn't mean it's all fantastic, because that statement is often misinterpreted, like you're being pro-migration. I say it's an inevitability. We've always seen people moving. If uh, a country develops, more people move. If a country is wealthy and has lots of labor shortages, it's going to attract migrants. It, it is part of who we are. But even beyond that, people also marry. Uh, people also migrate to get married, for instance, or to get an education. So it is, in a way, unavoidable. And, and so migration has... You know, more positive sides, for some people more negative sides. It really also depends where you are in the society, but it's not something we can think or wish away. So we really need to get rid of that perspective of being, yeah, it would be as silly as indeed to ask an economist, are you in favor against the economy? And then it makes sense when you say that to most people. And we need a serious debate about migration. Why have Western governments in general turned against migration since the end of the Cold War? 
Well, you never have hard proof, but I think it is barely coincidental that after the end of the Cold War, politicians uh, declared a war on migration, particularly the war on illegal migration and the war on asylum seekers, that it was a clear trend if you look in several West European countries, in Britain, in the Netherlands, in Denmark, in Belgium. And what political scientists would say, well, politicians need enemies in a way. Well, because fear is a very, very powerful instrument to mobilize voters behind a strong leader. So once the sort of communist scare or the, the fear of, of nuclear warfare sort of disappeared in the public perception after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the whole disarmament movement, it became very attractive in a way. We also saw, of course, with the falling away of, and that's the irony of history, with the uh, falling away of the Iron Curtain coming down, also this fear initially of a big east-west flux within Europe and later this fear of a big south-north flux. It is perfectly fits the bill to stage almost a new danger coming our way, a huge waves of migrants that are going to submerge Europe and it's all getting out of control. And that has been quite powerful ever since the early 1990s. This is not something that just happened yesterday because sometimes people think it's recent. It is not. It really started around 1991, 1992, all across Europe, particularly Northwestern Europe. So how has migration changed since the early 90s in Europe. How do we compare the migration that we see today to historic norms? Well, I think you need to go back further in time a little bit because, you know, people often think this is a time of unprecedented migration. Now, if you look at the global scale, there is simply no evidence to sustain that claim. Roughly 3% of the world population is an international migrant. That means somebody who's been born outside a country of is, is living outside his or her country of birth, and that has basically remained stable. So there's not a phenomenon. Of course, there's bigger world population. We have more migrants, but relatively speaking, there is no acceleration on the world scale. So this narrative about global crisis, inequality, poverty, warfare, climate change, leading to a sort of acceleration or spinning out of control of global migration, we simply don't have the evidence. But underlying that sort of global average, you can see big changes in the global direction of migration has really changed and that started already after the second world war because it was of course europeans who for the first sort of the, the four centuries before that were the colonists the occupiers the emigrants to other parts of the world in particular uh, americas of course but also africa and asia and uh, it was with the decolonization that we saw those patterns reversing that particularly in europe it's been a, a really big shift because Europeans have always seen themselves as the ones who moved out, right? We were the ones going to other territories. You could also say that was the biggest illegal migration in human history. It's European colonialism, because we never asked permission. And we indeed came with guns and, um, and gunboats. Um, that whole pattern reversed after the Second World War. And that had to do with decolonization, obviously. It also had to do with unprecedented economic growth in Europe. It had to do with increasing labor participation of women. It had to do with population aging. And you already saw in the 1950s the labor demand going up. With increasing education, you already saw that native populations of Britain, of Germany, of the Netherlands, of France no longer wants to do all sorts of jobs. And that's when we started recruiting workers, initially from former colonies in particular. I mean, certainly Britain and France mainly recruited workers from uh, like in the case of Britain, from the so-called West Indies, from Pakistan, from, from Bangladesh. 
So that the reversal, I call this, of migration, instead of people moving out of Europe to Europe becoming a major destination for migrants outside Europe already happened in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. Now then we had a period of industrial stagnation, recessions, but what you see after 1990, it picks up again and then migration started to change. It was no longer just former colonies, it was also increasingly, for instance, from Eastern Europe, and it's been a particular development in, in Britain, of course, a very different sort of, uh, and but also a globalization of immigration in terms of people coming from an increasing array of, of origin countries further afield, particularly if you look at skilled migration. So it has become more diverse in a way, immigration, than ever before in, in destination countries, in, in Europe in particular. What percentage of migrants are refugees? Well, so roughly 3% of people in the world are international migrants, and of that 3%, 10%, so 0.3%, is a refugee. We do see refugee numbers going up and down and up and down on a global level, and it really has to do with, with the outbreak and end of conflict. But there is no long-term increasing trend, unlike what many people think. Why is it that our perception as members of the public is so inaccurate in that case? I think there are several factors playing a role. In one piece of research, we found that the UNHCR itself is also involved in almost exaggerating the increase of global refugees. Just um, just tell listeners what the UNHCR is. UNHCR is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. That's the, uh, the refugee organization of the United Nations. For instance, uh, what we've seen is that the number of countries that are included in the statistics is increasing over the year. And particularly in the last sort of decade, they've started to include internally displaced people, so people who are refugees within their country. And of course, these people have always been there. They have always been uh, internally displaced. But if you suddenly add them to the figures, then you get a huge increase that is actually artificial. So that sort of creates this image that there is a skyrocketing number of refugees. Although the last few years we have seen an increase in refugees because of conflicts in Ukraine and Venezuela, it is not anything unprecedented if we look at historical episodes of refugee migration, for instance, in the former Yugoslavia. So there has been um, an up and down and up and down. We don't see a long-term increase. The other reason, I think, is that we have so much more access to information about wars going on in the world. And I think that creates an image that the world is more violent than ever, whereas, again, the data doesn't really support it. Uh, we don't live in a more violent world than 30 or 40 years ago. If you look at actual casualties in wars, you could even say we live in less dangerous times now. We could speculate endlessly about it. It's a bit unethical to do that. But the sort of idea that there's this global outbreak of conflict and it's much worse and we're getting more and more people on the move, I think it is partly linked to the access to, to, to images of conflict in the rest of the world. I mean, if you go back to the 1950s, 60s, we would basically literally not see what was happening elsewhere in the world. It was there very difficult to access. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code 
HOWTO, just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If war isn't driving migration, what is driving migration? Many people think that inequality and poverty drives migration, but the, and it seems very intuitive. But actually, you need some resources. My, I always say migration is, is expensive, particularly if you want to migrate over long distances, let alone if you want to migrate, let's say, from Sub-Saharan Africa to Europe. That means that you need some resources. It also goes along with what we call aspirations. So if you go to school, people who go to school tend to migrate more because they just have higher aspirations. Once you get a certain qualification, you want a different lifestyle, you want a particular job, and it often requires you to move. But the biggest driver of migration, if we look at the long term, is labor demand. Most migrants wouldn't have moved if there was no job to pick up some economic opportunity. And actually, we have, throughout history, recruited migrants quite actively in origin countries. So this was not something that just happened to us. Uh, we were talking earlier about the growing labor shortages already in the 1950s, 60s, 70s in Europe that really drove the migration. Of course, there's people moving for different reasons. And of course, there's family migrants following labor migrants. And there's, of course, also refugees. Uh, but the real driver of migration is, is labor demand and, and the whole economy in a way. We see a very, very close relation, for instance, between economic growth and levels of immigration. And I sometimes say, well, the best way to really bring down migration is to wreck the economy. Okay, given that, do immigrants take jobs, houses, school places and hospital places from natives? I think about jobs, we could be very clear. Migrants come to fill in vacancies. That doesn't mean that it would never happen that some migrant replaces a native worker, but if we look at the macro evidence, it is basically driven by the labor demand. So whenever there's vacancies, migrants will fill in those, those gaps. We couldn't really find any evidence that migrants displace native workers. Do they depress wages? No, not really, although the image is a bit mixed in the sense of if you look who really benefits economically from immigration, it is primarily the already better off. In society these are the people let's say the higher middle class higher income earners they of course are the main beneficiaries of the uh, services of migrants they often own the companies or have you know interest in the company or their pension funds in uh, in all sorts of uh, businesses that benefit from the labor of migrants and it is also true that the lowest income earners let's say around minimum wage often that includes lots of former migrants do not benefit at all from migration or may slightly find it a negative effect. Although it's very tiny, it doesn't justify any sort of narrative that migrants drive down wages that has very different origins. But you could say that uh, it's primarily the already better off that it benefits from immigration. And you could also say that it is particularly those who don't benefit economically from immigration that are most directly confronted with the social consequences of migration in the neighborhoods they live. So it make, that makes it understandable 
why people may ask what's in it for us. Just to come back to the second half of my question, do resources like houses and healthcare and school places also um, diminish for the native population because of immigrants? No, you can't really say that. I mean, locally, I think there's a very, you need to make a distinction between local impacts and, and national impacts. I think housing is a good example. Of course, if in a particular place a lot of migrants come at the same time and, and, and it's seen as a big influx, of course it can create shortages. But if you look at the national level, we don't really see that migrants take up that much, for instance, uh, affordable housing as we might think so. And what you see in a lot of countries, for instance, in the Netherlands, this is a big theme in the electoral campaign. It's being suggested that immigration is the cause of housing shortages, affordable housing shortages. Whereas the real issue is, is that in the Netherlands, we have defunded the public housing sector, which means that a lot of houses that were pretty affordable were sold off to the private sector, and we haven't constructed any new council houses anymore in the Netherlands. And similar developments we've seen in the, in the UK. Whatever you think of it politically, the decreasing availability of, of affordable housing has a direct relation with housing policies. And there is barely any empirical link with immigration. So, and but it's very attractive for politicians to suggest that immigration has caused this problem. Now, with healthcare, it gets even more interesting. You could say that actually, it's thanks to immigrants that, for instance, an NHS is still working in the United Kingdom. So, migrants are always seen as people who take out of the system. But what we forget, particularly if you look at recent migrations, so these are like the workers from Eastern Europe. These are young, healthy people that contribute much more to the welfare state than they take out. And if you look at the labor migrants provide, like doctors and nurses who, who are massively recruited by the NHS, you could say, well, in many ways, it is thanks to immigrants that we still have a functioning public healthcare system. Okay, well, continuing in the positive celebratory vein, does that mean immigration ignites economic growth and innovation? No, that would be to exaggerate what migration can change. Migrants are attracted by thriving economies. That's what we know. Uh, so you saw this big increase in Britain of, of immigration since the 1980s, 1990s in particular. It was often linked to the free movement within the European Union, but actually the structural increase in migration to Britain started way before that, when the economy started picking up and there were growing labor shortages already in the 1990s. So thriving economies tend to attract a lot of migrants. So you cannot reconcile two things, and I think that is, for politicians, very difficult to accept and to acknowledge. You cannot and have a, an open market economy with a liberalized labor markets, where we create all sorts of jobs that native workers don't want to take, and on the other hand, you want less immigration. Both things simply don't go together. And this is a fundamental dilemma, or you could say, politicians say they want less immigration, they make an impression that they're doing something about it, but in practice they don't do so much about it. You can, for instance, see that in the large-scale toleration of um, illegal labor, so undocumented migrants doing all sorts of jobs, and everybody knows this. This is a sort of open secret. And there's no real willingness to crack down on that. If you, for instance, look in Britain, the number of uh, employers that get really prosecuted for um, employing undocumented migrants is a tiny number, and it's actually symbolic. And it shows that behind the facade of governments talking tough on immigration, there's no real willingness to do something about it, because in the end of the day, it's convenient. 
Does that mean that in practice there are not meaningful differences in immigration policy between right and left-wing governments in Europe? Yeah, that's something we found uh, at a big project we conducted at Oxford University's International Migration Institute. We collected data on migration policies conducted by Western countries. And we we had a database with, I think, 6,500 policy changes. And then we tried to see whether left or right-wing governments have different migration policies, and we did not find any meaningful difference at all. So it is in rhetoric, perhaps, there's a difference, but in practice, there's very little difference. Where does illegal migration continue, and what policies encourage people smuggling? Illegal migration is basically the consequence of a gap between a labor market dynamics, so there's a certain demand for particular labor, and we particularly talk about lower-skilled jobs, and a lack of legal channels to accommodate that demand. That means that if you look in Southern Europe, for instance, but in the United States, as well, in agriculture, there's a lot of jobs, but there's no legal channels for migrants to come. And that then creates, uh, I'm going to start this again. So that creates a legal channel. No, where, 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 where I got stuck somewhere. Uh, okay. In Southern Europe, in Britain, in the United States, there is all sorts of jobs and labor demands. For instance, if you look at you know, the hospitality sector, or if you look at agriculture, all sorts of services. Cleaning is another example. There's a clear labor demand, but there is no legal channel to fill up that demand. What then happens is that people start migrating illegally. Now, the biggest source of illegal migration is actually what we call overstaying. That means people come in legally on a visa or a work permit and simply then stay longer, which means they become illegal in the process. The second consequence is that people will start using people smugglers. And I can give one example. Before 1991, Moroccans could go to Spain. They would just hop on the ferry. It's only 15 miles across the Strait of Gibraltar. And they would work in agriculture, construction, all sorts of other jobs. But they didn't bother to stay in Spain because Morocco's close by. They would work for a few months or years. And they would go back to Morocco. That's what we call a circular flow, people going back and forth. In 1991, Spain introduced a Schengen visa. And it was the, the starting point of the smuggling business because yeah, Moroccans still wanted to do jobs in Spain. So they started to use uh, fishermen who would just you know, bring them to the other side of the Strait of Gibraltar. And then we started to control that border more and more and try to fight smuggling, as politicians call it. But actually, we created a, a smuggling industry because the more you try to stop it, the more you make it profitable in a way. And in the end of the day, smuggling is a form of service delivery because migrants just want to go to the other side of the border and so and that has created this vicious cycle we've been trying to stop this you can say the same in the united states we we have three decades now of trying to stop people smuggling but in many ways the policies that try to fight smuggling are the very causes of the problem they proclaim to to combat so it, it is it is a vicious circle vicious cycle in which we got stuck Many people, particularly on the left, predict that there's going to be massive migration this century as a result of climate change. Do you believe that? Is there evidence for that? I've done quite some research on that. I have a background in environmental geography, and uh, there's a lot of other researchers who've been doing research on this. There's basically no evidence to sustain that claim. What is interesting 
before I start sort of explaining why that is the case, that the idea that we live in times of unprecedented accelerated migration, that migration is spinning out of control and in the future even more so, is supported by people across the board, really from left to right, but including indeed climate change activists who proclaim that idea. So this is not a left or right wing issue. So the most common myth is this idea of migration spinning out of control is supported by all sorts of groups. The problem with climate change migration or the idea that climate change will lead to massive migrations is the assumption that if people are confronted, let's say, with flooding or droughts, that people will pack up their stuff and move to Europe. And that is a very naive assumption, because, for instance, if we look at research, it has already been done on the effects of flooding or droughts or other natural disasters. But the overall pattern is that most people, if they have to move, they will move over very short distances. Because most people, we know that too, 97% of people don't leave their country. Most people like to stay very close to home. So if there will be displacement, it's going to be very likely, like it has been in the past, local, and if possible, temporary. The second reason why the assumption that climate change will lead to massive global migrations across continents is that migration is very expensive. So imagine you're a peasant in rural Mali, for instance, and you are confronted with increasing drought. And we know that already from research. If people get impoverished, it actually means they won't have the means even to move away from the village. The poorest of the poorest tend to get stuck. So if we are to be really concerned about the effects of climate change, the real concerns should go to people who are not able to move. And actually more people may get stuck. And we know from research on droughts that it often leads to less migration. And that is a paradox. And that is a fundamental misunderstanding about what drives migration. For most people, migration is a resource. It also means it's an investment. It takes quite some resources to move, and that's why the poorest of the poorest, if they move, move over very short distances, and most of them get stuck. Even moving to the next town can already be out of reach. What policies would you adopt if you were emperor of the world? Or should we say emperor of, um, emperor of Western Europe? What policies around migration would you adopt that you would consider to be sensible, beneficial, effective, and ideally not too uh, controversial? Well, I'm not emperor of Europe, and the idea scares me a little bit. And I also don't think that my ideological sort of inclination should play any role in what I'm going to say about it. I can say something, though. A lot of things go wrong with immigration and immigration policy once we deny the fundamental realities we have to do with. And what we see in Europe, in America, is a fundamental policies, a politics of denial of the reality. The reality being of one, that a lot of migrants fill in all sorts of labor shortages that we all know they fill in, but officially they are castigated like unwanted migrants. And that means we perpetuate a situation where migrants end up in, in, in situations of exploitation which we willingly endorse in a way, which we willingly tolerate. So we always have a lot of criticism on countries like Qatar and the Gulf, how to exploit migration workers, but it also happens in Europe. I'm not just talking about illegal migration, I'm also talking about people, for instance, from Eastern Europe, who are, who are exploited on the labor markets of Western Europe, who often don't know their rights. We also know this from Southern Europe, a lot of migrants coming in from Africa, they work in agriculture, so officially they're casted like unwanted migrants. But that means they don't have any access to rights. So we are also exploiting migrant workers. So what I think we need is a serious debate about immigration. 
And a serious debate about migration is a debate about the sort of society we want to live in. Do we want a society in which all sorts of services will be outsourced to a sort of new class of servants in our society? Is it really the kind of society we want in the future? We have to think about really fundamental questions. Do we want to maintain the current situation in which a completely deregularized labor market is creating all sorts of jobs, unattractive jobs, that migrants want to fill up? How are we going to deal with aging in the future? All of these questions will have an impact on immigration. I can give you an example to make this more concrete. When the French go in the street to, to have a strike against the increase of pension age, they implicitly are voting for more immigration. If you are choosing to maintain a horticultural sector that is completely dependent on immigration workers, is often heavily subsidized, you're voting for more immigration. And I can go on and on and on. So all sorts of questions that are actually economic or are, have to do with the labor market will have huge implications for immigration. There is one country that can perhaps use, can, we can use as a good example, is Japan. So Japan has chosen, quite consciously, to deal with issues around aging society in quite a different manner than, than Europe seems to be doing. The Japanese are working much longer. They're working until the age of 70, 75 now in many cases. Uh, they have a much more regulated labor market, where it's much less easy to create all sorts of jobs of import migrant workers. Although Japan also has increasing migration, the overall levels of immigration in Japan are way lower. And also Japan has a much lower growth sort of scenario in terms of, the, of its economy. And the question is, we cannot really think away migration, but we have created an economy that is increasingly dependent on immigration. The NHS is another good example in the case of Britain, the National Health Service. Of course, the fact that for some reason Britain doesn't educate enough Brits uh, to work as doctors and nurses has uh, an implication for your immigration, because it means you would have to import those workers. Now the question is, is this viable in the longer term? Because we sort of seem to assume there will always be this unlimited supply of migrant workers out there. Well, the reality is that the whole world is aging. Many origin countries also are facing increasing labor shortages. And particularly when we think about skilled workers, the question in the future may increasingly become not how do we stop them from coming, but where do we get them from. Heinde Haas, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It was a pleasure, thank you. This episode starred Professor Heinde Haas and his new book, How Migration Really Works, is available from our bookshop.org page. Find the link in the show notes. The episode was produced and presented by me, and I make the show with Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.